All right, so we're here for episode six of OG San. Uh, this is Say. I uh, got my dad here, Warren Furutani, uh, aka the OG. Uh, thanks, Dad, for swinging by and recording another podcast. Where I think this is gonna be a really good one. Um, the Democratic candidate Andrew Yang has repopularized and resurfaced the topic of universal basic income (UBI), um, or as he likes to call it, the Freedom Dividend. And this is not a new idea. It's been around. It's made its cycles. Um, it's prevalent in other countries and uh, in in one of the states and in, in the United States. Uh, but just wanted to get your take on you know on UBI and what you think about it and its prevalence in today's society. Well, you know, you know, not only UBI but Andrew Yang. Uh, I think as uh, Asian Pacific Islanders, we should take our hat off to him that. Uh, He's really been representing himself very well, not only in terms of the debates, but all the interview shows I've seen him on. Very articulate, very thoughtful, uh, and uh, UBI is his main thing, but uh, he's talked about a lot of other issues. I heard him on his interview with Joe Rogan and uh, quite a few interviews. He has really developed a following and his uh, tagline of what's the opposite of President Trump is an Asian American who likes math. <laughs> so uh, I got a text even, actually it was an email from my old friend, ex-Congressman Mike Honda, and Mike was reaching out to everybody he could saying, you know, it's about time we have a credible candidate here. Mike knows like we all do that he's not gonna be the presidential nomination, but he's really represented Asian Americans well, and uh, he goes far beyond that because his following is really broad and uh, very diverse from what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. So uh, hats off to him that he's really uh, done well in terms of uh, representing his ideas. And uh, so it's good to see that. Um, also, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, Congresswoman, I think she has represented API as well uh, also. So it's just a good to have Asian Pacific Islanders in the lineup since there's so many candidates running for president. Uh, you're right, uh, universal basic income is not new. It's an idea that's come up at different times. And the state you're talking about is Alaska. They have an oil dividend that mm -hmm. uh, all Alaskans get. And I think you look at also uh, similar kind of uh, dividends for uh, tribes, uh, people of different Indian tribes relative to reservations that are having a, a casino. So, you know, it's an issue that looks at how to spread the wealth. And his key thing, as everybody knows, is the issue of automation is going to be eliminating a lot of jobs. So it's interesting that as Bernie and others talk about a new uh, minimum wage of $15, uh, what Andrew Yang is putting on the table, which we all see already, is a lot of those uh, minimum wage jobs are going to be gone and taken over by automation. And uh, in the food service industry, as we've all seen, you know, you don't even talk to a waiter sometime or a waitress. You talk to a computer and put in your order, and then you're given by a person, but you're given a little device that you take to your table, and when it uh, buzzes, then you go up and get your food. So a lot of these uh, 
as we talk about raising the minimum wage to a living wage, the jobs that people get a minimum wage for doing are going to be gone. That's a great point. And so the whole thing about uh, universal basic income is uh, going to be a discussion point. It's a part of the New Green Deal from uh, the progressives in Congress that have put that on the table. So it will be a discussion point. And uh, Stockton, California, they're trying it with a, a limited group of people. I think it's $500 a month. But uh, people are trying it, and that one, as I understand it, in Stockton is being supported by the uh, tech companies in the region. And uh, tech is a perfect example of uh, what is going to be the vehicle to eliminate jobs. And uh, one of the biggest tech companies that's related to consumer purchasing is, of course, Amazon. And you look at how they do the uh, amazing job, and I and I take my hat off to their ability to move goods so quickly from when you order to getting it at your doorstep. Uh, but when you look at the process that's being done, it's pretty automated through the warehouses. So it's something that's going to be an issue that we're going to all have to grapple with. Uh, I'll be uh, uh, recently I was contacted from good friends from the Longshoremen's Union. Uh, there, there was a bill that uh, got passed, I don't know if the governor signed it yet, to look at the issue of automation in terms of the jobs at the port. Mm -hmm. That is becoming so automated that the whole thing about uh, the longshoremen's on the docks with a, a grappling hook that they use to pull crates of cargo or whatever around, that is long gone, is now folklore. And even using a forklift, to do it, uh, there's not people in the forklifts. It's all being done by robots. And the thing that the issue of the longshoremen are dealing with, and I understand it's a problem in their current contract, but automation is just eliminating all these jobs. And so the jobs that do remain and are going to be the ones that move the cargo are going to be all computer-related and high-tech because they're all going to be using robots to move things whether it's off the ships, and if everybody has seen the loading of cargo uh, onto a big major uh, ship, uh, the cargo containers that you see on top on the deck are all just a part of it. There's a whole bunch underneath the deck that go under, literally under the water line. So how do you determine what cargo container to take off first? You don't go up there and say, well, I want something out of the bottom container. It's all put on by computer and data. It's all taken off the same way. And all of it's done through robots and automation and technology. So the issue that Andrew Yang is putting on the table is a very real issue, not only for those that are, have uh, minimum wage jobs, but the one that he talks about a lot is trucking. Mm -hmm. And that the trucking industry, which still is the main mover of goods in this country, it says the main is the prime, the most popular job in twenty nine states still. Oh, really? Trucking. And then the related uh, uh, businesses in terms of feeding the truckers, housing the truckers, the whole mechanical thing and maintenance and so forth and so on. It's really going to change the game. So. Something that uh, I think he's putting four square before uh, the populace in this country, and not only in this country, but internationally, the issue of automation is going to be huge. 
So what do we do with people not being able to get work? Mm -hmm. And the universal basic income of giving a thousand people what he calls a freedom income, a thousand dollars per month, um, will stimulate the economy because it's going to go to people that don't save money really because they live paycheck to paycheck. So they're going to spend it. Infuse back in. Yeah. Yeah. Infuse it in the economy. Mm -hmm. So the impacts are going to have a, a real major ripple effect. The thing that I'm concerned about candidly is as much as that may sound attractive, everybody and he doesn't he doesn't discriminate rich or poor. Everybody would get it. Yep. So my sense though is that uh, this whole sense of uh, getting something for free, I don't know if that's the way you do it. Uh, the giving the money and the stimulus to the economy and people needing it, that's not the issue. Is that if you give someone thousand dollars and you don't expect anything back from that, my concern is that it'll create this attitude that uh, really isn't productive. The basic thing that's the, I think, the fundamental kernel of not only the economy, but a way of life is this whole work ethic. Now, what you work at, that's a whole other issue, but this ethic of work is a good thing, producing something, creating something. So the thing I'm looking at is if you look at this basic universal basic income connected to basic human service. So some people are talking about a national service that people can do national service. So maybe just like uh, someone that's in the uh, National Guard that has to spend a couple of weeks out of the year uh, and then several weekends out of the year doing training. Maybe the basic income, what it could be is people will get a UBI or freedom dividend, and in return, they provide a service, a social service. For example, if you're not working or, or you're unemployed, or but you're getting <clears throat> this money, which is helping you survive, it's not gonna pay for everything. It's right, $12,000 a year, yeah, it's nothing. Nothing. But I think it would make people feel good if they in return, give a service. So, for example, working with the elderly. A lot of elderly are just lonely. You know, spending some time with an older person doing some kind of social service, community service. You can do environmental service. You know, spend X number of, uh, you, to qualify for your UBI, you have to put in X number of like community service, but for the environment. Cleanups. Cleanups, exactly. Uh, working with kids, you know, recreation programs. After There's so many ways that we could use that as a vehicle to really produce things, produce culture, you know, produce art. Community. Yeah. That's a, I mean, I feel, I feel like that's a two, that's a, that checks the box on two items when it comes to UBI. The first is people's issue with free money for nothing. Right, you're not working for it. It's gonna, it's gonna. We talk about with tickets. We never want to give away free tickets because people are gonna expect free tickets next year, right? So that that adds a tangible uh, value to what that they're earning it, right? 
the other side is when he when he talks about when um, how when he answers the question of how we're going to pay for the freedom dividend. One prong is that um, we're, he wants to, if he was president, he would re, re, redefine what we um, see as, um, we would, he would redefine the economic measurements of success for the country. Right now, all we look at is GDP. And he said that's a, such an archaic narrow-minded, narrow, narrow, um, I don't know, narrow look at, at economic success. So he, he would, you know, adding market value for stay-at-home moms, adding market value for when you get a kid off drugs, adding market value for, um, you know, taking care of the elderly. So that ties perfectly into that, that you, you meld, meld both of those together. And I feel like that's a pretty strong combination there. And... The key thing is that it's a sense of purpose, mm. and it could really appeal to the uh, higher uh, kind of social responsibility that should come with democracy. So, the whole issue of redefining value, as you just you just said, I think becomes a big part of looking at cultural shifts. In American society, why do you generate value? And it's not just money, give somebody money. But I don't think it's an intrinsic American value to do things for free. And, and not free, but, but I mean handouts. Right. You know, when someone says, I'm going to give you a handout, everybody recoils from that. I mean, the term charity sometimes people recoil from that. Poor people recoil from that. Mm -hmm. They want to be, they want to give, they want to provide, they want to produce, they want to earn. I mean, a lot of, like, for example, even going a little farther afield, but this whole thing about retiring student debt. The problem with that issue that they're talking about is that at what point do you do it? And then how many rich people are going to be affected? I mean, the whole point is that when we borrowed money, because we're working class, middle class family, to send you and Joey to school, we knew we were borrowing money, so I knew I was going to pay it back. That's that's the basic contract I made. So instead of retiring my debt so I don't have to pay it, maybe give me a tax deduction. Or, I mean, you get some, but... The whole thing, I just don't think it speaks well to people or it brings out the best of people if they're given a handout. This whole uh, approach to what people call welfare. Right. You know, a welfare state. Uh, some people use this as a criticism of socialism, that, you know, socialism because everybody gets something for nothing or you don't, you got to work for it. That's the key to socialism. It's based on the working class. And so the working class are the ones that produce, build, uh, serve, uh, that they, you get something from their work, and that's what they want, true value. So the issue of UBI, I think, is not only worth the discussion, but is a little prophetic and uh, uh, insightful because it's going to become an issue that we're going to have to deal with. 
And you know, my background is education. So the whole issue of what jobs are gonna be automated, what role AI is gonna play, artificial intelligence in the future. Then we have to look at what are we educating people to do in terms of work in their jobs. So all of this becomes a big shift, a cultural shift. And then the big elephant in the living room for a lot of the different ideas that people are putting out there is how do you pay for it? Right. You know, there's a lot of discussion about aspirational things. You know, and I've said this quite a few times before, but the, the what you want to do, why you want to do it, the philosophical reasons for it, the principles that drive it, even when you want to get it done, but the real issue is how. And in the context of uh, automated changing society, particularly in the area of consumers, in how you buy things, whether you go to a brick and mortar store or everybody's buying online, and then when you look at the issue of online purchases and you realize that the biggest company that does that online selling, Amazon, paid no income taxes, Mm -hmm. then you go, what the hell's going on? So how to pay for a lot of this, whether we're talking about Medicare for all, whether we're talking about student debt, whether we're talking about services, whatever we're talking about, the issue that I think is an underpinning for all of these different ideas is the issue of people paying their fair share. If people paid their fair share, then we wouldn't be having a lot of these problems and we could pay for a lot of these things that people have the ideas about. Fair share. And Elizabeth Warren's got that wealth tax at 2% on people to make $50 million or their their wealth above $50 million. Fair share. I mean, that's pretty damn American. That's pretty damn democratic. Fair share. So anyway, with uh, UPI, UPI, how to pay for it, fair share, these are issues that uh, debates are really, really bringing out, although only in two-minute to 45-second sound bites, which is problematic. But uh, as we narrow the field, I think we can have much more better discussion. Well, I think, I mean, the good thing is that, I mean, I, I work in the TV industry, but TV is not the only medium that information is shared nowadays, right? And, I mean, Andrew Yang's appearance on Joe Rogan was may have been seen by more people and heard by more people than the debate, right? Got and he got to speak for, I don't know, he had an hour, two hours that he spoke at length with Joe. So, um, it's funny, he joked about it. He was... He's, you know, people were asking him, oh, was that a strategic that you went to all these internet outlets first? And he said, no, <laughs> I, wasn't be- I wasn't fighting off Rachel Maddow and, and all these TV folks to do interviews. They just were, that was the only option I had. But I think it's, it's worked out and, and it's almost of a grassroots-ish type of um, information wave when it comes to, to some of the, the other candidates. Well, that, that's one thing you opened my eyes to, this whole thing about podcasts and people listening, you know, radio. I, I thought that was kind of weird thing backwards. Yeah. yeah. But I watched this um, documentary on the Roosevelts 
because you know, want to learn more about Franklin Roosevelt and uh, well, Theodore also, but Franklin Roosevelt in particular because of the different things he did that were called socialism. But he had this thing called fireside chat. Right. You know, that the, all the families in the country, they, that came on, they were listening. So you're right, different ways of getting it out in the a more expansive way so people can really add the texture and detail to what they're talking about than just a soundbite or a, a gotcha or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I, I, I'm i interested um, in the idea of UBI. I feel like, if anything, it's a, it's a piece of the pie when it comes to addressing a lot of our future problems. But the thing I love about Andrew Yang and, and, the, and his, his campaign is that He's at. He's like for. He's displaying the type of problem problem solving and thought process that we need moving forward. Right. He always talks about twenty one century uh, solutions for twenty one century problems, and we need more people that are thinking forward thinking and really solution oriented versus soundbite oriented and just trying to appease you know or twitter political policy right and uh bill maher talked about it a little bit on one of his shows about um and i've already mentioned it on one of our podcasts that trying to look at the election 2020 based upon something someone did in 1970 you know, uh, there's got to be room for people to have changed, learned, learned from your mistakes. And that's one of the advantages I think the the older candidates have. But I think it's, it's, it, it's going to be interesting how the electorate's going to look at these issues. You know, if uh, the thing that I'm asking now, I mean, everybody should should really advocate and battle for the candidate they think is going to do the best job. But once on the Democratic side, once we've decided who that person is, you know, everybody's got to suck it up and support whoever it is. That's got to be our first commitment. Right. Our first commitment's got to be, and that should be the first question asked at every debate, no matter who wins on the Democratic side of the ticket, are you going to throw all of your energies behind this candidate so we can beat Trump? That's got to be the first question, and everybody better raise their hand, you know, because that's that's what we got to do. That's bottom line. This guy, this president, is just God. It's it's really difficult to to really fathom how this happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, it did. But uh, he's beatable. He definitely is. But uh, at the same time, we don't want to blow it by misreading the electorate again. I mean, they say it's 50-50 now, which is mind-blowing considering the, you know, the things that that he's done and the supposed outrage about all this stuff, right? Like, it blows my mind that it's still 50-50, but you always got to fight like you're from behind. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting. Well, it'd be really interesting to see how, I mean, the great thing is that Andrew has such a wide um, donor base 
at such a low dollar amount that he's he's uh, qualifying. He's going to qualify right. pretty deep into the into the debate stage. Yeah. Uh, so the more time he gets, the more we could hear about hear from him. I think he he speaks to the fringe, kind of like the non traditional um, voter who typically go to kind of like the outsider candidates. So as those outsiders, that, as that 20 gets whittled down to 16 to 12 to 10, um, if he's still in it, I think he's going to get more and more momentum. And I think just the more, the more attention that we could put to this type of thinking, I think it's just better, better for us. Exactly. In the, in the dialogue and that he's generating the discussion, the debate, and also, it's, uh, you know, in politics, uh, you know, because I've been through so many elections for myself and then supporting others and working elections, they tend to be real cynical in terms of you go for low-hanging fruit, the high-propensity voter. So the general election in a presidential is going to have a good turnout, and turnout's going to be driven pretty strongly on both sides of the ledger. Uh, in terms of the Republicans, they're going to be very motivated. The Democrats, I'm just concerned that people don't say, well, if my candidate didn't win, I'm going to you know, fold my tent up and leave. Uh, uh, but I think everybody's going to get behind what the candidate needs to be. But there's a, a movie on uh, Netflix about the Brexit vote in England. Mm. And people are going, how in the hell did that happen? You know, to pull out of the European Union. How did that happen? Well, the movie's about this political operative that found all of these people that were registered to vote that don't really vote, and he brought all these people to the polls. And it was based upon how to market the issue of uh, getting out of the European Union. It was pretty much nationalism about mm-hmm. England can stand on its own two feet, blah, blah, blah. Point being that he got to the voters that have not voted. And that's one thing Andrew Young, I've heard him say, is that people have come up to him and said, I've never voted before, but I'm gonna vote for you. So you get a lot of people, you think about voter turnout and how many of the registered voters actually go to the polls. And I know the presidential is much higher than the uh, non-general election or the off, off general election midterms. Andrew gets people that haven't voted before to vote. They're not being talked to by any of the traditional candidates because they're not high propensity voters. So he maybe has a clear path to talk to them and he's got ideas. So we'll see. Maybe he becomes a vice presidential candidate. Who knows? Or even if he's the economic whatever, right? Or I don't know, the official tech bro. That's what they call him. (laughs) Um, The tech bro. Thousands, thousands of votes count. Yeah, and in a lot of it, in campaigning, say a lot of it is what people do after they lose. You know, do you use this as a a springboard to something else, to another election? Uh, He's going to have a really strong springboard, or platform is a better way to put it, He's going to have a real good platform, a bully pulpit, and it's another way to describe it, to talk about ideas. And uh, it, it's going to be good to have him on the scene to bring up these ideas and issues from a 
as you said, a 21st, 22nd century viewpoint from your generation, his generation. You know, what are the issues that uh, you guys like the, the whole thing about us calling this the Oji-san, uh, old gangster, old-time politician, you know, sort of the deacon in the church, but the new ideas. That's what, this is a generational election. You know, are we going to go with Joe or even Bernie? Or are we going to go with Elizabeth Warren or Kamala or Corey or the mayor? This is a generational change, mm -hmm. shift. Mm 